Welcome to the Exponential Minds Podcast. The research, development, launch, and growth of new technologies is creating incredible momentum in the modern world. Join futurist Nicholas Badminton as he talks with the innovators and the exponential minds that are tackling some of the biggest problems and creating solutions that are propelling humanity to the next level. Welcome to another episode of the Exponential Minds podcast. I'm Nicholas Badminton. I'm a futurist and I like to think about humanity and technology. In this episode, I'm chatting to Dre LeBray, who's a, who's a friend and a co-organizer of Dark Futures Toronto, amongst another, a number of other things. Hi, Dre. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Um, so you've got a really interesting background. Can you just tell us uh, what you've been up to for the last few years and what sort of led you into this world of futurism? Recently, I started a company called TBD Company. And I formalized this futurism practice. What I do is I help organizations imagine possible futures so they can make better decisions today. And I use a technique called strategic science fiction or something I call strategic science fiction. Before that, I worked in advertising for 20 years. And in advertising, I worked as a creative director. And I did a lot of campaigns and I worked with a lot of big brands. But one of the key things that I brought to the table was technology-inspired campaigns and installations. And the way that I would achieve this was to, to think about how things might happen in the future. And I saw an opportunity to get out of advertising and focus specifically on futurism because rather than being constrained to coming up with ideas within campaigns, I would rather just come up with ideas that affect larger, higher level business strategy. So I went from advertising, lots of business knowledge, lots of creative knowledge, and now I'm doing futurism, but more of an applied futurism where I really strive to build prototypes. Yeah, and we, we, we look at the world of science fiction, you know, we've been watching it for years and years, even, in, even since the 1900s, one of the first black and white movies, like silent movies, was a science fiction movie, right? Yeah, the science fiction goes even beyond modern media, I believe there might even be, I'm, I might be completely wrong here, but I believe there might even be like spaceship-like designs in uh, Egyptian hieroglyphs. There are imagined ideas, whether they were real or whether they were imagined. I think that, uh, that our imaginations lead us to build stories about things beyond our understanding. Yeah, and, and maybe even like religion is almost like a, an element of uh, science fiction, but that's a, that's another episode. <laughs> that's another but thinking about strategic science fiction, I, I've worked on some campaigns as well with specific uh, sort of application with design fiction. So how is strategic science fiction different from the idea of using design fiction, which is telling stories to imagine us in 20 or 30 years' yeah. time? There's definitely a lot of overlap, and to tell you the truth, uh, I don't know what the specific nuances might actually be to a certain degree, because strategic science fiction is something that I've been doing for a number of years before I even uh, discovered that there's an entire world of, of uh, futurism from an academic level, from, a, from um, a practical level. So design fiction is something that I discovered in my research after I'd even started applying what I was calling strategic science fiction. But uh, I would say that strategic science fiction 
definitely has a, shares a lot with uh, design fiction. It shares a lot with design thinking. It shares um, some traits of experiential futures that you might see in strategic foresight. Uh, so it's it's more of a moniker that I use to brand the style of creativity that I've been working on for over 20 years to come up with these ideas. And that's the, the brand name that I give it. So it's really interesting. As a tool, it's something that helps people think bigger, but actually root themselves at a point in the future. But where do we draw the boundaries? Because uh, let, let's let's use artificial intelligence as an example. People seem to think that Skynet's going to come online. It's going to be sentient. They're going to turn the machines on us, and suddenly this dystopian future is going to happen. That's not necessarily like the truth of what is going to happen. That's very much in the realm of science fiction. A more strategic view of it will be um, artificial intelligence working with humans to have a better world, better medical system, transportation systems, businesses where people don't have to do the drudge work and whatever. And that would be something more strategically based in, in your approach as well. So, I mean, how do we start by engaging clients and thinking and in convincing them that this, this process is good and not just going to end up with a bunch of stories that they're never, ever going to achieve? Well, I, I think of, of um, when I talk to clients about this, I often say that the future belongs to those who imagine it. And there's a wonderful illustration of Shanghai from 1990 and 2010. And it, in 1990, it looks like a remote fishing village, and by 2010, it looks like Blade Runner. And what I have to, uh, what I impress upon people is that in 1990, when it still looked like a remote fishing village, there were people with a vision that had an idea of what it needed to look like. It takes a lot of planning and it takes a lot of time. I truly believe that if you create the vision and think about the future, you are more prepared to encounter any, let's say, black swan events. Having a vision is such an important thing to formalize that a lot of companies and a lot of organizations are too busy thinking about the next quarter or two, not realizing that something may happen in the future and that by default we tend to think in uh, the future is always going to be progressively better, incrementally better. Not realizing that there are transformational things that may happen. There are uh, disciplined and... and, 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 uh, and uh, uh, negative things that will happen in the future that we need to be prepared for. You just mentioned Black Swan. Can you just expand on that idea? Well, there's things that may happen. The, the, I, a Black Swan event could be a, a transformational event. Something that that enters the, your economic reality that changes your business. Uber would be a good example of that. It's, it's another word for disruption. Stealing your market share. Stealing the market share and really thinking about the, the constant reinvention. If we look at Facebook and Uber and Google and and even Apple and some of these other people, they're, they're, always, they're already thinking five to six years into the future anyway. So, I mean, how can normal business start to use these? Uh, how can, say, a retail company, which is a very sort of slim margin business, go up against the power of Amazon and just bought Whole Foods and the Amazon Go store and they're living in the future today but how can they use sort of strategic science fiction to look at, at their world in a different way? A good way to look at it is uh, imagine who these people are going to be in the future. If you really care about your consumers, if your customers, the people who use your, who, who use your products and your services, what are they going to look like in the future? And if you can establish 
that long-term target and you know that you create an idea of what tomorrow looks like, the only unknown is how do you navigate yourself to that? And the way that retail can do this is to just imagine realistically and strategically how are people going to behave in the future when you're buying groceries. And we know that the future is going to look a lot like today. The same way that today looks a lot like the past. You might live in a house that was built in the 1950s. You know, we're not living in the, you know, the year 2017 back to the future uh, reality that 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 uh, that was done there, but there were some prototypes in there, the ideas in the story that look very close to what is happening today. I, I think in Back to the Future, I mean, people were communicating with fax machines, not necessarily true, but they had a version of of, of video telephony, which is very much like Skype. Um, the idea, <laughs> the idea that you can use pills that turn into to pizzas and hoverboards, not necessarily there. But look at look at the kids riding around on these on these wheeled vehicles. They're not hovering, but it's pretty close to well, where it is, right? You know, back then there was the hoverboard that they had, which was likely outside of the realm of possibility due to the defying of gravity but aside from that uh like this it inspired i would say that that was a prototype that inspired what we call the hoverboard which was evolution of the segway uh that you know these kids ride around with their vapes and their hoverboards but, <laughs> but just going back to the retail idea the idea that how we shop in the future may not be too dissimilar from how we shopped in the past and how we're shopping today. We know today that more and more things are being delivered to our homes. And when you start to look at what friction exists in the shopping experience today, having to lug around a bulky package of toilet paper or to carry a heavy case of, of soda, that's, a, that's friction in, in the shopping uh, world. And having to push around a giant shopping cart is friction. So to be able just to just have subscription-based products that just get replenished automatically. With that being said, I think we love to go shopping. It just boils down to this hunter-gatherer mentality. Fresh produce will always be best selected, you know, individually. So I imagine a world where produce is going to become more of the world that we do the actual shopping for, and packaged goods will just appear on our door. These are not predictions, they're just ideas of what could potentially happen. And when you work with a retailer to explore how those ideas may potentially manifest in the future, we can now start to come up with strategies on how to get to those different areas. Which ones land in the preferable future that we would like to see happen, and how can we make that happen? It's almost like writing a short story and Kurt Vonnegut's got a number of rules and I, I love the one rule which is that he says someone has to suffer. The protagonist, the ma the central character almost has to suffer for you to care. And, every, and people ask me, it's like, why are these stories that you write, why, why is there always a little bit of inconvenience and a little bit of pain? It's like, because we care more, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. I mean, it, it makes me ask the question here of like, with this strategic science fiction, you know, we don't want to draw dystopian futures, but what's the architecture of telling those stories? Yeah, so a way to do it is to understand what the... What, what are you trying to do with your, with your client, with the organization that you're working with? Because you need to do something that explores outside of their cognitive bias. There's all the stuff that we don't know that we don't know. And strategic science fiction 
and other form, all the other forms of futurism are tools to effectively create ideas in this world that we're not aware of. In my case, there's a multitude of ways of getting there, but one good example is to hire writers to write stories. And I, I always refer to this one Frederick Pohl quote that says something to the effect of, good science fiction doesn't only invent the automobile, but also the traffic jam. And to me, good storytelling is the combination of intention and obstacle. You need to have a character that needs to get something done, and you need a formidable opponent to get in their way. And we see that at very, very small levels on a day-to-day -day basis, driving down the street, needing to get somewhere quickly, but the red light, getting a red light every time. That's just a small version of it. Uh, in the dystopian science fiction stories, it's exaggerated with you know, space aliens and all that kind of stuff. Or, you know, Black Mirror even better because it's so much more realistic and it's tied down. It's tied very directly to stuff that is very relatable to us today. But good stories are just that. Otherwise, you're just going to tell a very flat documentary. And when I look at different ideas around design fiction and, and expressing notions of diegetic prototypes, you know, functional objects within story worlds or in fictional worlds. It's interesting to see technology that, that let's say, has a gesture recognition interface that one is using, and you can see how convenient it is that they're able to check on what's in their refrigerator without opening it, something like that. It's hard to care about that because it feels like technology for technology's sake. What's missing is the, the wear and tear and the patina and the, the usage that people have on it. And this is why you need to start showing, you start, need to bring out uh, a story that people could relate to and show how technology or science fiction ideas can help a problem, can exacerbate a problem, whether it's exaggerated or whether it's done uh, with nuance, the idea is to not come up with solutions, but the idea is to come up with ideas of what may potentially happen, and you come to the conclusion as to what you deem the problem, what you deem the solution. What are your value judgments on that? I, I like to think about this, and, and this is fascinating to me. The, what, what artifacts do you create? So, for example, I ran a conference uh, some four years ago called uh, From Now. It was the idea that from now until when, um, and, and I asked people when they bought their ticket to make a prediction about the future, and I chose six ideas that I thought were fanta fantastic from a realistic perspective, but also were far enough into the future that they, 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 were, almost, they were almost so inspirational that they were slightly out of reach. Mm -hmm. And what I did was I worked with a designer that actually built actual physical prototypes yeah. that didn't work. But they were physical prototypes. They were all painted white. They, but we 3D printed some. He, he took other devices and, uh, and other things and put them together. And it was everything from like crutches and medicine through to devices that would let you scan for, for various conditions through to, to whatever. Um, so that was a physical artifact in a way. And uh, I, I've read books like Transmetropolitan, which is, oh, yeah, uh, which is an amazing There's sort great of... Great ideas in there. Yeah, great ideas about the future, but in graphic novel form as well. Mm. Um, and, and also, I just sort of dragged this out of my bag and I bought this today. It's actually... <laughs> it's a book that, that's, that's a, 
a book with men with with, uh, with recipes in it called the In Vitro Meat Cookbook. Excellent. Yeah. That's actually half fiction, half scientific inquiry. So it says Wired, but it's actually um, if you can get hold of stem cells. Mm-hmm. And powdered powdered meat. You could make these these recipes, but it's it's far enough away to to be like science fiction, but close enough to be almost reality if you're willing to go the extra end. So my question is, you know, what artifacts do we do we use when we tell these stories? I have a couple of ways that I look at it. I create this idea of artifactual prototypes and artificial prototypes, and that is borrowed from the term artifacts from the future, which. Uh, is a term that's used in the strategic foresight world. And I love the idea of an artifact from the future because futurism is really just, uh, you know, reverse uh, archaeology and reverse anthropology. But if you look at an artifactual prototype and an artificial prototype, artificial prototype is when the prototype is lives in the story world. It's an idea within a story that can be interacted with by characters, and then you can pressure test that. And in a commercial sense, it's a very, it's an extreme, it's a low risk uh, way of prototyping an idea, and it's fairly low cost because it really involves writers and and exploring things from different angles. It's a very useful tool, and it's a good way to strategically uh, give strategic direction to writers. When I do artifactual prototyping, that's when you have enough technology today to fake it. And that's something that I did a lot of in the advertising world. One of my favorite ones is an oil spill binoculars that I did for a group called the Dogwood Initiative in Vancouver. And they wanted to raise awareness of the Northern Gateway pipeline that was being built uh, and wanted to let people know that with a pipeline equals increased tanker traffic. Increased tanker traffic will lead to an increased um, odds of there being an oil spill. And what was to, what would happen if there were an oil spill in Vancouver around English Bay? So we took a sightseeing binoculars, classic one, had a movie prop company build it. We inserted an Oculus Rift in there, and in that Oculus Rift was a one-to-one map of English Bay, but we had inserted uh, a crashed ship, orange absorption rings, burning barrels on the beach, dead whale, uh, uh, all the lights out in the city. It would just be a toxic environment. We just created this thing. We planted it there and we stepped back and pointed some cameras at it. If you want to see it, you could just go to YouTube and look up virtual oil spill and you'll most you'll likely find it. I remember using it actually uh, at, at the time because I was also working in advertising. A lot. This is super. It was the earlier days of like VR, Oculus Rift, and whatever. And it's like this is fascinating uh, as an application. It's not perfect, mm-hmm. but I don't think that these need to be perfect applications. They don't right? need to be for perfect. Well, the great thing about that one was that it was a cross between an artifactual prototype and an artificial prototype. It was factual in the sense that it was a physical, tangible thing that you could walk up to and have an intervention with, but it lived in this digital story world. And it provoked a lot of meaningful conversation. It got the mayor out to talk about the issue. Uh, We also positioned it close to civic election time, so it really prompted a lot of people to come and check it out. And we got a lot of news, and it lived for the day and it was gone but the way we merchandise it afterward online through social media through 
uh, YouTube and so on and so forth, it was able to do a lot more beyond what it could do on just the day. Yeah, and it's using futurism for activism, and that's something that I'm mm. hugely, hugely behind as well. So, I mean, looking at this world and thinking about strategic science fiction, and we've got lots of insights. Are there some examples out there that you think that this, I've been like TV series or, or specific films or whatever? Do you think are really good examples of where the writers have really grounded themselves in, in an approach where it seems very real and yeah. close, and it sort of causes that that visceral human reaction that we that we have to those? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the um, I'm a science fiction fan. Yeah. I love hard science fiction, so I usually I always pay attention uh, to the reality of it. I'm not a fan of uh, I don't like the fantasy type of science fiction, like Dune, like Dune or Star Wars and things yeah, like that. Not as much. Yeah, I still enjoy them, sure. but to me, they bring back more childhood uh, nostalgia of of escapism. Whereas when I watch something like Black Mirror, I'm not only entertained, but I really critically think about the ideas that are in there. And when I think of other uh, shows that I've seen that I, I really enjoyed that that did that for me were, I would say, the movie Her with Joaquin Phoenix. Mm. Really great example of you know our addiction to social media plus uh, artificial intelligence. That, that idea was really, really interesting. The Expanse is interesting. I like... I like the expanse. There's a genre of you know the expanse, Westworld, Firefly. These are all science fiction series or shows that are rooted in something concrete and real. They're no real. There are no aliens, but there are the evolution of human and so on. But I, I you know, I, I do take. Uh, I look at other forms of futurism, concept cars that automobile companies do. Great. It's 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 a way of practicing it at a corporate level uh, any any rendering that is architectural renderings are great when you walk down the street you see the proposed building plan on the hoarding and you get an idea of what that might look like but it's not just the rendering of the building it's the render ghosts and the people that they photoshop in there to try to create that you know ideal community that's a really interesting thing to look at but I love it when it's exaggerated there's a Toronto artist that does is post-apocalyptic, what would happen if Toronto was just run over by nature? Let's say if human, humans left the city, what would that look like? Rewilding, right? It, it looks really, it just really, really interesting um, ideas around that. This uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the movie, I Am Legend. Yeah. Um, you know, that type of uh, removal of human life. But the other day I saw something that I, th I thought was really neat, and there are also very playful exercises that can provoke meaningful conversation. In Toronto, we have very few subway lines. Transit system is okay, but it does get a lot of complaints around it. But somebody took all the various proposed subway lines uh, through the years and just created this map. This What would that subway map look like if everything got built? And I saw that, and it was, it was awesome. It just looked like this place could look like Hong Kong if it had all these, these lines. And that provoked a whole interesting debate on on uh, Reddit. Uh, people commented it on Twitter when I reposted it there uh, and reposted it on, on LinkedIn. But there are playful things. Another friend of mine created a series called, series called Imaginary Subway Stations. We just took pictures of the subway stations that we know and love here in Toronto and just photoshopped in different neighborhood names 
that don't exist on the subway line. And that, that got picked up by BlogTO. And people talked about it. It was a really interesting idea to put out there. But it doesn't take much more than either a bit of writing, a little bit of uh, Photoshop. And if you want to take it to the extreme, you can make a motion picture, live action, short film, uh, 3D render something. Uh, the tools for design fiction and strategic science fiction are are wide and many. Yeah, and it's interesting. Like the the, the volume of science fiction over time in in the film world has been, it's it's just been gaining momentum. We could it's even, trending. Yeah, it's it, trending right now. It's trending, but you know the exponential growth of science fiction. Because I, I do think that we are at an incredible time where more things have changed in the past 20 years than did in the previous 200. We've got weird little genres of like steampunk and then cyberpunk. And then we've got people like William Gibson that, that determined what cyberspace was. Yeah. But he wasn't really a user of the internet, you know. It's it, it's kind of incredible that we see these people. I mean, who are the people out in the world? Do you think we should be looking to over and above yourself for some examples? I mean, one person that I look to, in addition to William Gibson, is Bruce Sterling. I think that he he's very much talking about art and technology and science fiction, and he was one of the cyberpunk authors out there. But who else should could, could we sort of? Go, go away and sort of look up online or, or sort of take a look at some of the films or some of the books that they've written. Yeah, uh, well, Bruce Sterling is great. I would catch him at South by Southwest every time I every year. would go because he would do the closing yeah. the closing remarks and uh, love his writing. So yeah, definitely uh, uh, Bruce Sterling, Neil Stevenson. There are many, many science fiction authors out there that that do amazing, amazing uh, work that way. In uh, Neil Stevenson's now the chief, like one of the the. Is at he, Magic Leap, I believe. He's yeah. at Magic Leap. Yeah. I don't know if he's chief dreamer or, or Something like chief that. futurist. Imagineer, I think. Engineer. And I Snow Crash and VR and those whole things. You know, they brought him in, and they're almost turning his science fiction into science into science fact, mm. right? Yeah, and his brain goes to the places where if you take. Before I jump into some more recommendations, there's the interplay between storytellers and technologists. That is typically the sh they share a vision of the future mm. that most people don't take into consideration. You have technologists who develop the the, uh, the the technology that can see where it could potentially go. We have storytellers who who are inspired by the technology. The technologies are also inspired by the storytellers. People see the um, communicator on Star Trek, want to make a cell phone out of it. Twenty years later, that interplay has now bled into the mainstream population because technology uh, and science have become so much more mainstream, especially with the, this resurgence of science fiction, that, that anybody can really apply their minds and think up of amazing ideas. And that's why I think some of the best design fiction and strategic foresight work is done collaboratively with people mm. who might enter the process not knowing a single thing about what's going on but will leave with this mind expanding notion of what is possible when you work with other people and think this way but uh other things to look into there's a book called speculative everything by dunn and raby they're a um speculative i guess it's like speculative fiction group uh, that they it's it's really smart interesting thought-provoking ideas around futurism there's an entire world of strategic foresight that i believe was started in hawaii by um uh now 
can't remember his name. Uh, but uh, in started in Hawaii. Um, uh, I've met Stuart Candy, who was a professor of strategic strategic foresight. Uh, he did some time here in Toronto at OCAD. He's now at Carnegie Mellon. Him and uh, Jim Dunnigan, I believe, is his name. They've done amazing work in the world of academia. They have a game called The Thing from the Future, which is a wonderful tool for prompting ideas. I think it's looking into academia and foresight starting. Looking into the world of academia, the world of science fiction, and the world of art. Those three areas are rich with a lot of ideas for the future. Yeah. And, and it seems like there, there seems to be a trend of not only conferences, as I'm finding, hiring futurists to come in to, to do a lot of their keynotes where they normally wouldn't. They'd just go mm. to their own industry or motivational speakers, all the way down through to people actually hiring futurists that are independent futurists that have been trained at OCAD and other places around the world to to help them as part of their teams and foresight functions coming in as, as a norm within strategic functions of organizations, right? That is trending in, in the world. You can see so many conferences that are the future of this and the future of that, uh, the future of work, and which now makes me think of the, the multitude of podcasts that I subscribe to that are all futurism-based podcasts. Yeah. Uh, and there are a few that are the mandatory listens when they come out, um, flash forward, fantastic podcast with some wonderful storytelling and excellent dissection that happens afterward. But there's so many... Uh, branded podcast now about the future. I believe mm. the Wall Street Journal has one called The Future of Everything. Mm. And it's a wonderful little series. McKinsey has one. Yeah. I think Monocle does some. Yeah. One of my favorite authors, uh, Douglas Rushkoff, does Team Human, mm. which is incredible. And I, I remember reading Siberia, which almost read like a, like a science fiction novel back in the day about kids doing smart drugs and DMT and virtual reality, Jaron Lanier and and all these people, and no, it's, it's real, real, real. And it, it, it's almost like in the world that the, the, the strategic science fiction exists in pockets. And I, I, I try and speak to the counterculture a lot more than, than most people. How does the counterculture and normal, normal culture feed into your, your, your process? The, I look at, I, I'm a, I believe that the counterculture or the fringe or the edge uh, I believe in the the idea of uh, everything has this, uh, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And I did a talk many years ago called The Game of Opposites, and I dissected, I dissect trends over the course of 20 years, and I showed how this trend led to that trend because of, I guess, the saturation of something. For music, for instance, it would be when electronic type of music trends, typically, in the mainstream, something that is opposite of that will end up trending, whether it's music that is not electronic or acoustic or maybe something that incorporates more vocals. And it just kind of flip-flops back and forth like that. I feel that when you observe these things, uh, I, uh, uh, Amy Webb wrote The Signals Are Talking. Fantastic idea, uh, fat, fantastic book, great ideas in there, great methodology. And part of the idea is that what becomes popular often starts out somewhere in the fringe right and that's what you need to look for is look for the fringe and sometimes the fringe is counterculture because there is evolution and revolution and some things will evolve and some things will will, will, will turn on a dime and for me right now my background has primarily been working with uh, companies and organizations and, and corporations uh, in a commercial capacity so that's where my network lies and that's the work that I'm doing but 
the more I expose myself to uh, a greater variety of people and organizations, I can bring these skills to. Well, I've worked on a lot of nonprofits, uh, like the No Tankers uh, VR piece, but I think that it's important that everyone is practicing futurism, and you could append something futurism to anything, any subculture, any fringe, any mainstream piece, you can just append a word futurism and that can be your niche. There's medical futurism, there's Afrofuturism, there's uh, you know retail futurism. You can get very, very specific with it and to me uh, it's 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 just about the depth of the depth of thought that you put into your analysis and your ideas. So we live in a world of evolution, we live in a, ro- a world of revolution. And that world, you know, we can look at these ar- artifacts and these artificial scenarios, but we can use strategic science fiction like you've been talking about to help us look to the future and imagine what if the world was different and what if we acted in different ways and what if that technology was part of our lives. I'd just like to say thanks very much to you, Dre, for, for being on the podcast I'm sure we're going to do many more of these interviews going ahead in the future. And yeah, where can we where can we find out more information about you online? My contact information is available at tbd.company, a website I'm sure will happen in the near future, but it, right now it's in the future because I'm too busy doing other things. You're too busy inventing the future to, yeah. to, to build what we need today. Well, you but, say the, the cobbler's kids always wear the, the, the worst shoes. I would say the futurist's website always... Lives in the future? I don't know what. I don't know. My website looks awesome, but like you know, I get attacked by hackers and all sorts of people. So hey, maybe maybe the future is nothing but like a a homepage with an email address on it anyway for me. Dre LeBray, founder of TBD Company, person that that understands how futures can change companies' destinies. Thanks very much for being Thank on you. the podcast. Thanks for having me.